0: Joel, chapter 2, but before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this unique word from Joel, and I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would form and fashion our hearts this evening, and Father, I I pray, Lord, even as there's this incredible picture of destruction that's wrought in this book, but also just the building up and the redemption that happens. Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would do just a work in our heart, a redeeming work, a healing work, I pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, the announcements are in the bulletin. We're going to get right into the Word, the uh, the Book of Joel. You know, I I've read through this book before, but I I tell you, when I was when I was in it, just teaching it for the first time, going slowly and carefully through it. Wow, there's there's nothing really like this book. It's an extraordinary book, uh, it, certainly. I I want to um, I want to uh, just go through again briefly the uh, sort of the history and the context of this book. Dave, can you put up that the uh, the t- not the timeline of the kings, the other one? So when was Joel written? And so all of you who are have been with us, you know, through these uh, uh, prophets, teaching through the prophets, here's, the kingdom was established under, under Saul, David was, uh, Saul was uh, really removed, he disqualified himself as king, David was, King David was installed, Solomon's son was Jeroboam and, but there was a I mean Rehoboam, but there was a civil war, it, uh, a division of the kingdom between the nor- northern tribes here. Um, there were ten tribes there of Israel, and the two tribes in the south. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And so if you scroll down a little bit, here here um, are the different prophets here on this side. And you'll see here, Joel is one of the, or rather, here's the the prophets to the north, the northern kingdom. Elijah, probably the best known Old Testament prophet, Elisha, Amos, they were prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel, the apostate nation up here. None of these kings, all of them were evil, every last one of them. These are the kings of the north. Kings of the south, we know uh, a number of these were great kings. Asa was a good king. Jehoshaphat, a good king. Uh, Joash, uh, kind of good. <laughs> he had some good good years. Uzziah, wonderful king. Jotham, good king. And here are the uh, prophets here. And they were the prophets to the southern kingdom. And so interesting that God sends his prophets both to the folks who will refused to repent, these over here, and those who uh, did repent. And there is good reason to believe that the reason uh, Joash turned into a good king was none other than Joel, this prophet uh, that prophesied around this time. If you were not here last week, I can't imagine what you were doing last Sunday night. Um, While well, you're not here. But I, if, you, if, you, if you weren't here, I just want to tell you, you missed getting a sticker. Because I personally put a sticker on everyone's forehead, except a couple new people who thought it was really weird. They put it on their hand. But you missed your sticker last week. So next year during the Super Bowl, remember that sticker. And, and, and think of what you missed. Uh, I am thinking think of what you you got instead of being here. You got a lopsided game that was really boring that everyone left by halftime. Ex- except for people like um Andrew and uh Jessica. They they watched the whole thing. But uh uh anyway, um what was I saying? Uh, I I don't even So so uh anyway, here the the these oh yeah, Queen Athaliah... You usually don't see this woman uh, in the line of the kings in the south. You certainly don't see it in the line of the Messiah. This is the line of the Messiah. She's actually, it's perfectly appropriate not to have her here. If you remember, Joash, Queen Athaliah was Jezebel's, who is Ahab's wife, daughter. So the daughter of Ahab, uh, who his name is associated with lives in infamy. He's a terrible king, but he uh, he really uh, turned the whole kingdom, northern kingdom, over to Baal um, in the 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 false prophet. I mean, the false god Baal in the in the north. But their child was this woman, Queen Athaliah. When her husband, Queen Athaliah's husband Jehoram, died. Uh, she had, they had one son. I believe his name was ah- Ahaziah. But after a year, he died. And so, rather than submit to uh, have another king uh, come to the throne, she killed every last one of them, every heir to the throne. She killed and made herself the queen, Queen Athaliah. She thought she killed them all, but the king Jehoiada, and uh, rather the high priest Jehoiada. Hid Joash in the temple. This is all by the way, in second Kings, this whole and, and second chronicles. Uh, the high priest hid Joash, he was just a baby in the temple when he was six years old. Uh, he, Joash was presented to the people, and uh, Queen Athaliah was executed. But it is believed by some because it was Joel hammering away. Uh, as a prophet that caused the people to repent and caused the high priest Jehoiada to to have courage to to bring the king out of hiding and 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 I know he's only six years old, but you get, you can't let this woman continue to be queen. She actually took all the uh, the the things in the temple, the instruments of the temple, and stole them from the temple and put them in the the houses of uh, of Baal, and and so. Uh, Anyway, so so the prophetic word sometimes causes revival. The prophetic word sometimes really does not cause revival, but yet there was a continued witness of the people. And we have, uh, to the people, and we have their example to this day of how we should be even if we happen to live amongst the people who don't repent. But in the case of Joel, it's believed that it led to... Um, uh, it led to revival. A remarkable picture uh, in the book of Joel here. Uh, why don't we just keep on going to the end, just briefly, uh, just scroll down. So you see here's Micah comes up around here. Hosea's over here in the north, and then Jeremiah uh, here, Zephaniah and Habakkuk, uh, and Ezekiel and Daniel during the Babylonian exile. So, and then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, last uh, prophet. Of the Old Testament there, Malachi, so uh, anyway, Joel Joel, if you read it carefully, is the whole book is re- about an enormous plague of locusts, and I went through the the some of the illustrations and the history of of terrible uh, locust plagues. You can actually go through history and read about them. They don't happen very often. Like literally one, one out of every 30 or 40 or 50 years uh, do you see one of these plagues that is just overwhelming. A small locust plague is something like 600 million locusts. And they can either travel in a big crowd above land or um, they, they just go on the land. But how's this for a description in verse 4 of chapter 1? of dis- of, descri- of destruction what the chewing locust left the swarming locust has eaten what the swarming locust left the crawling locust has eaten what the crawling locust left the consuming locust has eaten there's a number of different species of locust 80 different ones in the middle east and these they just completely there was wave after wave of locusts, and, and this is the type of thing that happens with locusts. They come in, destroy everything, leave their eggs, and then those eggs hatch, and, and a new wave comes, and there's just a, a utter destruction there with, with a plague of locusts. Now, as we discussed last week, this plague of locusts was specifically a judgment of God, that is clear that he yeah he does make that clear uh, in this uh in this uh in this book not all natural disasters are necessarily from the lord some are uh, how again i i, I this is a, it's sort of a soapbox issue with me how someone can get on national tv after a terrible disaster and say a disaster clearly clear that that just happened i don't know katrina or whatever clearly clearly was not from the lord because god would never do that how they could say that phrase god would never do something like this i don't know what bible they're reading because from the beginning of the end god does use natural disaster as an act of mercy to get his people to repent and turn to him And get back into the word of God and repent and have a... The Bible says when we repent, times of refreshing will come to the Lord. And if it takes a a, a plague of locusts to a nation or even in our own lives, if it it takes a plague coming in and what the chewing uh, locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, uh, uh, the crawling locust has eaten, what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. If that's what it takes in my life to turn me back to Jesus... I want it and so that's what this book is about and there's all these really descriptive um, things that happen it's believed under um, uh, Athaliah this this wicked queen that God brought this judgment of a plague of locusts and Joel shows up and says let me tell you why it happened and so a little bit more of the, uh, of the description, verse 11 of chapter 1. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished, the vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, and the trees of the field withered. Surely joy is withered away from the sons of man. Gird yourselves and lament you priests verse 13 wail you minister before the altar come lie all night in sackcloth and and so there's just this picture there is just this picture of 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 utter destruction verse Three of chapter two, a fire devours before them and behind them, a flame burns. and And the Romans described uh, the, the uh, describe uh, locust plague as like a burning fire because after a plague of locusts came through, it just looked like a fire had come through the land. It just looked like a fire just had burned everything up. It says it, it. It says in verse three. What just incredible descriptive language the land is like the garden of Eden before them behind them a desolate wilderness and so then in, in, in verse 12 this is where we left off last week it says now therefore says the Lord actually the new American standard I prefer that translation it says even now says the Lord Even now, even after all this destruction, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. In other words, even after everything that's happened, don't think that I will withhold mercy if you come to me with all your heart. Even even the mess that you've made out of your life, and, and as a pastor, this is the challenge so often with people who have made a mess. They've sown to the wind, they've reaped the whirlwind. They, they, they They've sown seeds of sin and destruction in their li- of their life and they've reaped destruction and they just can't get it that in the nature of God, part of his nature, actually his name, meaning who he is, is merciful if they turn to him he will he will welcome them back turn to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping with mourning verse 13 rend your heart and not your garment the word rend means rip so they used to rip their garments as a display that they were repenting but he goes I, I'm sick of that that's just a religious show rip your heart open is what he he says to do, return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. In Exodus chapter thirty-four, God, I mean, Moses asks God, "Show me Your glory," and God actually says, "Okay, I will." Wow. And God gives passes before Moses and tells him what his name is, and and this is what his name. In Exodus 34, I believe that's verse seven. This is the name that God gives himself. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. That's God's name, meaning that's who he is. Meaning no matter what you've done no matter what a mess you've made out of your life, no matter if your life is, is a description of, of, of that we've already uh, read in verse four of chapter one, the chewing locust, what they left, the swarming locust has eaten, the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and the, what the crawling locust left, the consumer's locust has eaten. Even if locust of sin, the locust of sin has completely eaten up everything down to the roots, God will relent And have you back? What a great picture of the Lord. Verse fourteen: Who knows if he will uh, turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord? Verse fifteen: And this, this is. So we left off in verse fourteen, but pick up in verse fifteen. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. We talked about this: uh, the fasting. Uh, last week, man, if you've never fasted, I, I, I really strongly suggest to you, urge you to study what the Bible says about fasting or come ask me. I, I'm a big proponent of fasting, of what to do in a fast and why you fast. It can really get you focusing on the Lord if you're at a crossroads in your life. consecrate a fast meaning call one together gather the people sanctify the congregation assemble the elders gather the children in the nursing bays let the bridegroom go from his chamber um, go out from his chamber and the bride uh, from her dressing room now this is to me one of the best descriptions of repentance in the whole Bible I'm sorry I'm giving I, I, I know I have a habit of exaggeration but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I love this Read this carefully. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Repentance is something so obvious when you see it. Whenever you're dealing with someone and wondering if they're repenting, it means they didn't. Because if they were repentant, it would be obvious. Here, the repentance that is being suggested is if you're about to be married, stop the ceremony and turn to the Lord. Man, if someone does that, you know they're <laughs> repenting. It says, Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room means stop the celebration. Stop it. You guys shouldn't be celebrating. You guys have been in rebellion against God. So even if you have a wedding planned, stop it. And and, and turn to the Lord. We've actually seen this very thing by the way uh I've actually seen this very thing that involving an actual wedding where where there was sin in someone's life and and they agreed to to put off their wedding That's real repentance. Some of you are probably sick of me quoting second corinthians seven eleven but I like to quote it a lot because you read it and and it's just a description of godly repentance and Godly repentance is always obvious verse 11 this is Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 what diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what what, uh, what vindication meaning you vindicating the Lord's reputation because you've soiled the Lord's uh, reputation by something that you de- did. And you, you're just, it's just so obvious. Whenever someone's repenting, it's obvious. So does anyone agree that's a pretty good description of a repentance, right? Stopping a wedding? I think that is, seriously, I think it's a great description of real repre- rep- repentance. Okay, well, I have this whole thing and I've spent all this money on this wedding. Doesn't matter. Repent. Verse 17, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. So, wow, this is really good when uh, the prophet's actually telling you what you need to say in order to repent, but that's what he's doing here. He's actually saying, okay, here's what you should say. Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. He's telling the priests what they need to pray. And this is what's called intercession, praying on behalf of someone else. Spare your people, O Lord. The priests up until that point are, were like many pastors and priests in our day. They were just saying whatever you know the tickling ears around them wanted to hear. Rather than, you know, rather than going to the Lord and say, Spare your people, they've sinned so greatly. And do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where's their God? It says, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. Oh, what a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture of someone who's in right relationship with the Lord when the Lord is zealous on your behalf. And guess what? When you're walking in in obedience to the Lord, the Bible says he is zealous, zealous on your behalf. God, the creator of the universe, the one who's spinning the world on its axis, What is it going, like 50,000 miles an hour, something like that, you know, spinning around, moving through space? It says he's zealous, he will be zealous on your behalf. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into uh, barren and desolate land. So, part of what's going on in this, uh, in the book of Joel, is just like you guys have been eaten up by a plague of locusts, if you don't repent, I'm going to bring an army, an actual foreign uh, army of human beings. And he's saying, But I will relent if you will only obey, and it's believed. That with Joash that we saw up there, the king who, who actually rebuilt the temple, don't, don't know if you remember that, but that he put that chest in front of the temple and all the people came by and they rebuilt the temple and the worship of Jehovah was uh, reestablished. And got, just like with Jonah, who prophesied roughly around the same time, by the way, just like Jonah and Nineveh, uh, Nineveh was going to be destroyed. But they repented and God relented. It's believed that it's the same here, where where God it says God will, um, uh, ver, verse verse twenty, I will remove far from you that northern arm army and drive them away. More description here, likened with uh, uh, likened with the description here to a plague of locusts. It says. And I will drive him into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the Eastern Sea and his back towards the Western Sea. And his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. And so one of the things if you read about locust plagues, the famous locust plagues, there's been some of them who have who the wind has brought them over the ocean. They can't survive over the ocean. They die, they go into the sea, and they're washed up uh, on the shore, and just a tremendous stench is resulted. Also pestilence, in which thousands of people um, have died as well. So these continued allusions to, to a locust plague. Fear not, O land, verse 21. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. So this is a picture of God restoring here. And the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Interesting thing about the promised land compared to where they had been enslaved in Egypt is that in the promised land in Canaan, they had to live by faith because there were no, there was the Jordan River, but relatively small river. There wasn't this natural irrigation like the Nile River had just uh, Particularly, I think in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites dwelt in Egypt, there was this these tributaries, this tremendous irrigation system. When they went to the Promised Land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was they had to purely rely on on faith <laughs> from day to day that that, that God was going to send rain, and that's what this is. Referring to here in verse 23, it brought them not only a plague of locusts, but actually famine. And he says, I'll bring the rain back. You know, sometimes I envy uh, sole proprietors who are in business for themselves, people in construction, plumbing, electricians, tradesmen and women, and this type of thing. Because they're not on this... uh, they don't work for some corporation. They can always, you know, they, or the federal government or, or the state government or city government where they know the paycheck's gonna come in every week. They gotta rely that, that God's gonna provide them their next job. And, 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 and I find that a lot of those people, they have great faith and, and a greater faith than, than mine because they're trusting from day to day, oh, I know the Lord's gonna provide. He's going to bring the next job. And they just see the faithfulness of the Lord all year long. It's, it's it, 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 you know, we get fearful. Oh, I would never want to have to, I'd be worried to do that. Well, you know, the disadvantage of not being in a job like that is you don't get to see the, at least in that area of life, the faithfulness of the Lord all the time. And that's how they were there with the, with, with, in the land of Israel. They just had to rely that God was going to bring rain because there was no irrigation system there. And God says, he promised you repent and it'll be like the days, the former days where the rain came on a regular basis. So here we go in verse uh, verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Then one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible, I don't exaggerate or use hyperbole. Come on, I don't. But I mean, it really is. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So, what sin will do, it will do exactly what we read about in chapter 1, verse 4 in your life. Don't be deceived if you continue in an area of rebellion against the word of God, I know the word of God says this, but I'm gonna do this. Eventually, the chewing locusts will come in and eat up part of your life, financial, relationships, health, whatever. And then if you don't stop, God will send the swarming locusts to, to take what they left. And then the crawling locusts to take what the swarming locusts left And then the consuming locust will take the last thing. Sin will devastate your life completely. Sin will destroy it. But the amazing thing, if you obey the Lord, verse 12 of chapter 2, and you turn to God with all your heart. Notice in verse 12, it says all your heart. Not with a divided heart, all your heart. If you turn to him with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, Verse 25 of chapter 2 says that God will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. I like that, the years. Yeah, I think of seasons of my life. I think of my life in college completely wasted. Completely wasted. I am so envious of, of the college students in our church who are living for Jesus. I wasted those years. And and not only that, I just sowed so much that wound up coming back and and, and just destroying parts of my life. Just like uh, just like locusts. They, they 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 came in and they, you know, they ate up just different emotional parts of me and and, and 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 parts, you know, where you have security and peace and just all the peace just eaten up. Wasted those years. But this verse tells me and promises, and I know it to be true, because I, by the grace of God, I did return to the Lord. It says in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Yeah, it's true. I can't get back those years. But the things that were done by me, the rebellion during those years that were done that caused so much damage, the Lord will come right in and will restore of course until we die there's always going to be consequence of sin but it is shocking the way the lord will come in and and just and bless you in a way that you absolutely totally completely do not deserve look at what he does verse 26 you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So, this people who their lives had just been destroyed. I know you're probably sick of hearing me saying it. Verse 4 the chewing locust, uh, there was one wave, then a swarming locust, then a crawling locust, and then a consuming locust. It says that they. There's this picture of them return to the Lord and then praising him because he's dealt wonderfully with them. He will do that to you. Don't believe the lie of Satan that you caused so much damage in your life that God cannot restore to you. That is a lie. That is a lie of Satan. Yes, there'll always be consequences as long as we live in these fallen bodies and before, until Jesus gives us our new glorified body. body. But he will and restore. He wants all of our hearts though. Verse 27, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I can say without a doubt and I've been able to say that this without a doubt for years that I know that the Lord dwells in the midst of my home and my church. And that's ultimately where the Lord wants to get everyone. He wants every one of you here this evening. He wants you in the same place. That you're not wondering, hmm, I wonder whether the Lord is in the midst of my life. I wonder I wonder if he's in my home. The Lord wants to bring you to this place with full conviction and utter total confidence. You say, like verse 27, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. That's the peace that passes all understanding. That's how it comes about. And my people shall never be put to shame. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So this is like coming out of nowhere. Verse 28. This is a quoted in Acts chapter two. And again, we see this in the prophets. All of a sudden, the prophet's like talking about the present tense, and then all of a sudden he shoots forward a thousand years to something that's going to happen in a thousand years. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days, I believe 50 days after Passover, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead after three days. And then for how many days after that did he appear? He appeared to, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500 people. Um, He appeared to the apostle Paul. He appeared to them in the flesh, in a new body, before he ascended to heaven. And the last thing he told his disciples, don't do anything. Wait in Jerusalem until you are empowered on high, from on high. And in Acts chapter 2, we saw that, the fulfillment of that. They were all, I believe, 120 of them praying where the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And they began to speak in foreign tongues, in foreign languages. And the travelers from all over the, uh, all over the world who were from different countries or said, what in the world is going on? How come these people know my native language? They must be drunk. And Peter, what did he do? He, he, he got up and he says, they're not drunk. They are not drunk. But what you see here is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And then he quotes this verse right here. The Apostle Peter quotes this verse right here in verse 28. It says, it, says it'll, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old dr- men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my maid ser- men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. I love this, just out of nowhere. <laughs> out of nowhere, he starts talking about this thing that's gonna happen a 1,000 years from this time. 800 years, this is about around 800 B.C. And Peter quotes this verse. In the first sermon ever given under the new covenant in public, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with courage, he had been hiding from the the Jewish authorities worried that he was going to be crucified himself because he was a follower of Jesus. He just comes right out into the open, filled with the Spirit. And he quotes this verse. Now, this is an interesting verse because it, uh, it really is a description of what life is like under the new covenant, in particularly the life of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, you, as a general matter, uh, the, the Spirit was very active. The Holy Spirit was very active. But really, uh, only in isolated events did the Holy Spirit actually come into uh, a man or woman. And it was, it was really only certain leaders or prophets that God had chosen to have the Holy Spirit ca- fall upon them. So in Genesis chapter 41, Joseph was filled with the Spirit of God. In Exodus 31, the craftsmen who build the ta- uh, tabernacle will, were filled with the Spirit of God. In Numbers chapter 27, Joshua was filled with the Spirit of God. In the, bu- in the book of Judges, certain judges in Israel, meaning leaders in I- Israel, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, filled with the Spirit of God. Saul actually was filled with the Spirit of God, and so was David. Isolated events that, though the, though the Spirit was very active, it could not be said of an Old Testament believer that the Holy Spirit lived inside of them. Joel here prophesies, and through the eyes of a prophet, is looking forward to the time where it says in verse 28, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall uh, dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And so every believer has the Holy Spirit inside of them. Every believer has a gift, a spiritual gift given them To them by the Holy Spirit. Many, many people speak prophetically, even in this church, in our church alone. Dozens of people have a prophetic gift. Now, that doesn't mean they're talking about the future. Prophecy in the Old Testament, including Joel himself, most of his prophecy is about the present time. Joel, most of this book, 90% of this book, is about that time then. And he's prophesying. And and so prophesying really supremely is not talking about the future. It's talking about what God wants to speak to a particular people. For example, on a Sunday morning, I, I, I preach a sermon after people come up to me and they say, why, how did you know I was doing this and that? Well, I didn't know, but God was speaking prophetically through me. And, and so Many, many people have a prophetic gift. People come up to me and tell me about their dreams. People come up to me and tell me about their visions. Uh, They come up to me and tell me about something about the operation of their spiritual gift. Not so in the Old Testament, on the Old Covenant. Joel is looking, uh, speaking to a very discouraged people, and he's encouraging by telling them that, look, someday... Everybody, every believer in Jehovah and God is going to have a spiritual gift, is going to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them to guide them. The Bible says that we know we're the children of God because we have the Holy Spirit in us, Romans chapter 8, as a witness that we are children of God. It's the wonderful news, good news, of the new covenant. So this description, this, this uh, description of the, the new covenant here that the prophet Joel uh, gives, and um, Peter quotes it. He's like, these guys are not drunk. But what's happened here is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel that God, the Spirit's pouring out on all flesh, meaning all people who believe in God. He's, the Spirit's pouring out. It's a wonderful, a wonderful privilege of being a believer in Christ, the gift of the holy spirit and which he's which he's looking forward to here verse 29 and also on my men servants and on my maid servants i will pour out my spirit in those days and i will show wonders in the heavens and the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And so here again, we see what is going to be, remember throughout the prophets, there's been this this idea, there's a near, sometimes there's an immediate fulfillment, sometimes there's a near-term fulfillment, an intermediate term fulfillment, and a long-term fulfillment. And so in these just short number of verses, you actually see a fulfillment which we saw in the book of Acts but then also before um, the coming, the second return of Jesus. Remember Jesus promised that he would return again. Before he does, there's going to be signs such as the moon turning to, into blood, into the color red, and and the sun shall be turned into darkness. There will be these signs. It says before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Bible is the day of God's judgment, and it's not a twenty-four hour period. It it's really a season of God's judgment. We know it in the in the Bible it's the it's termed the, the the time of tribulation the time of Jacob's trouble which is going to immediately precede the return of Christ that there's going to be what's called the day of the lord you could be, as well call it the season of the lord where he's coming in judgment but you also in verse 32 have the the same picture of of the coming of the new covenant that whoever calls on the name of the lord will be saved Whoever. There, are not, there are, are not people that God excludes. There is a doctrine that says that Jesus died only for the elect so that there are some people on this earth that if they call on the name of the Lord, they will not be saved. Not true. This verse in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it's quoted in Romans chapter 10. Whoever means whoever. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Quoted in Romans 10, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then the, the uh, two verses later, it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever. And so also here... Um, it's it's a picture of the new covenant where at this time, by and large, although there were Gentile believers throughout Israel's history, it wasn't until the time of uh, Jesus released to, to the, uh, the, the uh, where Jesus releases the apostle to go to the ends of the earth, to all nations. It wasn't until that time where uh where where you have really the gentiles coming in in mass where whoever calls upon the uh the name of the Lord is saved and so uh we're out of time now so man I thought we were going to get to the end of the B- book of Joel but uh some really good stuff in that chapter so we'll resume with chapter 3 uh, uh next time but um